0: We are back, and I think it's time for us to talk Turkey, which has always been a puzzling phrase to me. I guess when people use it, you say you're going to talk Turkey, it means you're going to speak frankly about something. But no, in this case, we're literally going to talk Turkey (laughs) With, with our Turkish correspondent, Gordon Smith. We've spoken to Gordon at length before about travels around the world, and it's time we did it again because he just got back from the Republic of Turkey. Welcome back, Gordon.
1: Thank you very much, Doug.
0: Now, I want to add that before you left, I did make a special request of you that you did speak with Turks and, and do a little research about the father of the modern nation of Turkey, Kemal Ataturk, and I'm certain that you, uh, you did some of that.
1: I did, indeed.
0: T- tell us about Mustafa Kemal, uh, better known to the world as Kemal Ataturk.
1: Well, the best way of summarizing what Ataturk represents to the Turks today is he's as if you took george washington abraham lincoln and franklin delano roosevelt and (laughs) rolled all three of those into one man that's the kind of significance that ataturk has to turks today really extraordinarily important figure as far as that country is concerned
0: Well, Gordon, I've been promising listeners to this program for years that we would talk about this man someday, because in my mind, he really is a singular figure in in 20th century history. Um, There aren't many people you can point to and say, that guy is really the founder of the nation. His vision of what the nation should be is what, what came into being.
1: That's absolutely true. There is no one who begins to compare with him in importance as far as creating the modern republic of Turkey is concerned. And and Turkey, as we know it today, is less than a century old. I mean, on the one hand, Turkey is a country through which many civilizations have, have passed everyone from the Hittites to the Greeks and the Romans and the Byzantines and on and on and on. But the modern incarnation of Turkey, that only came into being in the early 1920s and was built on the ashes of the Ottoman Empire that preceded it. The Ottoman Empire, unfortunately, picked the wrong side in World War I.
0: <laughs>
1: they chose to fight on the side of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarians, and that, of course, was a fatal error for the empire—truly fatal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I don't want to—I don't want to necessarily go out of sequence here because you've taken us right to 1918, and I'm—I'm I'm, I'm tempted just to run with that into the 1920s. But, but this is probably worth going back in history to note that, uh, as, as you made allusion to, that—that. That for, I guess you could really argue that for a thousand years, the real center of the Roman Empire, once Rome fell, had shifted to Constantinople, today's Istanbul, and it was really a successor to Rome for that, for that whole time period.
1: Yes, absolutely. As far as the, the citizens of the eastern part of the Roman Empire were concerned, Rome didn't end when uh, Rome was sacked in, in 410 A.D. or uh, later on in that century when uh, the last of the Western Roman emperors was deposed. As far as the Byzantines were concerned, the Roman Empire kept on going, and it kept on going until 1453, until it finally fell to the Turks.
0: Now, my understanding, Gordon, from visiting Istanbul many years back was that, uh, I guess it was Mehmet the Second that came in and, and took the city. He had a little of assistance from, from cannons and gunpowder.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> they had walls around the city that were impregnable until you could shoot giant cannonballs at them.
1: That's right. Those walls had stood for a thousand years. And, uh, well, some pretty considerable traces of, of- those walls can still be seen in modern Istanbul today. But unfortunately, they weren't high enough and strong enough to withstand the, the, the cannons <laughs> and the waves of infantry assaults from Mehmet II's troops in 1453. So yes, after uh, a thousand years, the Byzantine empire came to an end with the fall of that city.
0: So for centuries, I guess it's fair to say that uh, really the Islamic world, which stretches from Morocco to, 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 to Indonesia, I mean, uh, uh, something like a billion uh, Muslims in the world, and fewer back then, of course, but, but it was a huge, bra- vast, sprawling empire of the same religion, and it, I guess you could say that the, really the center of it, for most of that time, really was uh, was, was Constantinople renamed Istanbul.
1: Yes. After uh, after the fall of of Constantinople, it became the center of the Ottoman Empire and uh, the sultan who ruled over that empire was not only the the secular power. He was also the the caliph. He was the religious head at least of the of the Sunni part of Islam. So both from the the standpoint of secular power and religious authority, it was very much centered on Istanbul, as it later came to be known.
0: So let's go. Let's fast forward back to, to the late uh, the late 1800s. There was a promising uh, young kid somewhere in Turkey, Mustafa Kemal, and he, I guess, um, made a name for himself in the armed forces.
1: Interestingly enough. Atatürk uh, was not born and raised in what today we know as Turkey, but rather in Greece. He grew up in the town of Thessaloniki, as it's now known. Then it was called Salonika, and it was part of the Ottoman Empire. So although his family was Muslim and ethnically Turkish, he grew up in greece and uh he was a smart young fellow uh his his father was uh in the uh the ottoman militia and was a small businessman and uh had enough resources to put his his son into cadet school and when he finished his um his military training both as a as a cadet and later on in officer training school, he joined the Ottoman army as an officer a few years before the outbreak of World War I.
0: Well, um, I, my knowledge is a little spotty in, 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 in how this happened, but I do know that uh, in the, the epic Battle of Gallipoli, a great failure on the part of the British, Australians, and New Zealanders to bust into the southern part of Europe. I guess one of the successful defenders uh, in that battle was was that a Turk.
1: absolutely he was at the time a young colonel and uh, he was in control of part of the troops that were defending the Gallipoli peninsula. The Gallipoli peninsula is basically the the northern side of the Dardanelles strait, which is the the Strait to the west of Istanbul, and you have to break through the Dardanelles Strait if you want to uh, enter into the Sea of Marmara and and then attack Istanbul. Well, that's exactly what the Allies wanted to do in, in World War I, and this plan to take Istanbul, via that route, was essentially the brainchild of one Winston Churchill, who achieved, of course, much greater fame in World War II. But uh, at the time, Churchill was head of the British Royal Navy. He was Lord of the Admiralty. Well, the British plan didn't work out <laughs> so well. They tried to send their fleet through the, uh, the Dardanelles and lost uh, a few battleships trying to do that. And then they decided to try and do it by land. And so they attacked the Gallipoli Peninsula with uh, British and French and and Australian and New Zealand troops. And they happened to, at least the New Zealanders and the Australians, happened to come ashore in the sector that was commanded by Colonel Ataturk. And uh, it was very much of a a touch-and-go kind of kind of battle. This came in 1915. Uh, Turkey was already on the ropes in this, in this war. And if Turkey had lost this battle on the Gallipoli Peninsula and thereby opened up the route to attacking their capital, almost certainly Turkey would uh, have been defeated right then and there. Well, Ataturk managed to to do uh, to accomplish against uh, uh, very high odds the near impossible. He managed to uh, rally his uh, his troops and hold off the uh, invading troops, and that was what cemented his military reputation as a hero. It also got him promoted to general, by the way.
0: And I, I remember hearing tales, Gordon, that he was a fearless guy. He would wander around the battlefield, he's calmly giving commands as shells were landing around and blowing things to hell. And I think that, I guess, I gather that, that impressed people. Is, is, is there truth to that story?
1: Yeah, he was uh, certainly a man of great personal, physical courage. Uh, he would position himself at the, at the front of his troops in one uh, critical battle. He was, in fact... Struck in the heart by uh, a stray bullet, however, it happened to strike his watch. Wow! And that was what uh, saved his his life. Yes, he, he was uh, he was definitely uh, a man who always wanted to be in the, in the thick of it, and it was very much his uh, inspiring personal example that was very instrumental in securing the victory for the the, uh, the Ottoman troops.
0: We're speaking with Gordon Smith, just back from the nation of Turkey and educating us about uh, the history of the great Turkish leader, Kemal Ataturk. So, Gordon, uh, the war ends, um, the central powers are, in essence, defeated, and I guess the whole Ottoman Empire at that point is carved up like a turkey.
1: Absolutely. It was uh, indeed carved up into nice, tidy slices uh, in the wake of the, uh, the the end of World War One, and bits and pieces of it were parceled out to uh, assorted Allied powers. The French got a piece. The Italians got a piece. The British got a piece, and the Greeks got a, a piece. I, I probably left some out of there. I thought, Oh, I forgot about the Armenians. They got a <laughs> chunk uh, as well.
0: And thereby breaking the heart of Lawrence of Arabia, who was hoping that it wouldn't quite go that way.
1: Yes. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia was not a man who uh, embraced that kind of realpolitik.
0: I guess Winston Churchill also bragged that, yeah, he created the Transjordan in one afternoon, carving carving yeah. another chunk out of out of the old Ottoman Empire.
1: Basically... The Ottoman Empire ceased to be.
0: So, what was left of it, I guess, is basically something fairly close to what what modern day Turkey is. How did how did uh, Ataturk go from being a, a prominent general to a, a secular leader?
1: Well, for all practical purposes, there was virtually nothing that you could describe uh, as a, a functioning Turkish government in this period. Uh, where. We're in 1919 at this point in time. Much of Turkey is occupied by uh, invading armies. There is virtually no Turkish government worthy of the name. And at this point, Ataturk manages to secure himself a military appointment in the eastern part of the country. So he gets on a ship, sails from uh Istanbul down the the Black Sea coast and lands at a city called Samsun and ever afterwards the date that he landed there May 19th uh 1919 he always picked that day as the day that the history of modern Turkey began hmm. and at that point he began to uh, rally other Turkish leaders to him. Other disaffected generals who weren't willing to accept this carving up of their of their country began also to try and cobble together some of the pieces of the defeated Ottoman army. And over the subsequent uh, months, he. Uh, through uh, a couple of basically founding conventions of early leaders uh, of the country, created a, a de facto alternative government, which eventually came to be located in Ankara. Essentially, this this new provisional government led by Atatürk declared that the. Nominal Turkish government in Istanbul, which was of course under the thumb of the the Allies, especially the British and the French, that declared that that government null, void, and without any authority.
0: I want to just backtrack slightly. Um, when talking a couple of days ago about, about about your trip, you'd mentioned to me that something I hadn't heard about is quite extraordinary. That that sort of I think speaks to what a, a future leader this man might have been in that, uh, in relating to the, the battle at Gallipoli, he wrote an, an open letter to the, the, the mothers, of, and mothers and parents, I guess, of the fallen soldiers that opposed him that was quite remarkable, quite conciliatory.
1: Yes, this happened many years later when uh, he was uh, the, the, uh, the president. And he wrote... Uh, an open letter to the Anzac mothers in in 1934. As I mentioned earlier, the Australians and the and the New Zealanders had fought at Gallipoli and uh, had left many thousands of their dead behind them. He wrote this letter in 1934 as a group of mothers of these dead soldiers Uh, was coming to Turkey to basically commemorate the the deaths of of their sons. And this is the letter that he wrote to them. Those heroes that shed their blood and lost their lives, you are now lying in the soil of a friendly country. Therefore, rest in peace. There is no difference between the Johnnies and the Memets to us where they lie side by side now here in this country of ours. You, the mothers, who sent their sons from faraway countries, wipe away your tears. Your sons are now lying in our bosom and are in peace. After having lost their lives on this land, they have become our sons as well.
0: That's that's quite remarkable. That's quite a remarkable thing.
1: That is one of the, the most remarkable documents written by a head of state that I have ever read.
0: Yeah.
1: Bear in mind that he is talking about the soldiers who slaughtered tens of thousands of his own fellow countrymen. And, of course, came very close to taking his life as well. It's it's an extraordinarily... uh, a compassionate document as well as a document that shows the kind of statesmanship that he was capable of it tells you so much about the
0: character of the man indeed indeed and I want to and I want to get into that now because between 1919 and the time that 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 he um, that he expressed that that sentiment he did a couple things he first of all he saved the nation from the invading Greeks who were intent upon creating you know a greater hell Hellenic Empire, I guess, for lack of a better word, and, and he said about modernizing the nation. Let's, let's talk about the invasion first, because the bloodshed wasn't over yet. He had to rally people to drive the Greeks back, back out.
1: Yes. Um, the other invading nations, uh, especially the, the French and the, and the British, were really not prepared to fight to defend their gains in Turkey. Both of them had lost over a million men each in World War I and trying to sell to their respective electorates the idea of yet another war in uh, a place that was, as far as they were concerned, practically on the other side of the, of the planet. That just wasn't going to fly. The Greeks, on the other hand, <laughs> looked at it very differently they'd been given, as a result of the the first treaty carving up uh, Turkey, they'd been given uh, a large slice of the country on the Aegean coast, centered on the city that is today called Izmir, and was then Smyrna. But unfortunately, they weren't content with that, (laughs) and they decided to move inland uh, into the western part of Anatolia, and carve out a much bigger chunk of territory for themselves. And it was that that really roused the, the, the Turks to to pull together, to assemble uh, a real army for the first time since the end of the war in, in 1918, and confront the, the Greek army directly. They first halted their advance uh, in 1921, then there was a period of stalemate, but in the summer of 1922, they routed the Greeks at a battle at a place called uh, Dumlupinar, and over the succeeding two weeks, they basically drove the Greeks all the way back to the uh, Aegean coast, the Greek army was evacuated, along with a portion of the Greek civilian population, and that was essentially the end of the the, the Greek dream of a, a a greater Hellenic nation, as you as you put it hmm. a moment ago. At that point, that enabled the Turks to renegotiate the treaty that had been rammed down their, their throats at the end of World War I. They met in Lausanne. Uh, the treaty that emerged out of that basically established the borders of modern Turkey as, as we know them today. It also led to what is known euphemistically as the exchange of populations, which essentially meant that something in excess of a million Greeks had been established in Asia Minor for literally thousands of years. Yeah, probably
0: back to the time of Alexander, I mean, and beyond. I mean, for, for, yes. for, forever, yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. Those Greeks were all sent back to, to mainland Greece and to the offshore islands of Greece, and in exchange, some hundreds of thousands of ethnic Turks who lived in, in Greece were sent to Turkey. So that was part of the, the the process through essentially ethnic cleansing that made Turkey uh, something much closer to the overwhelmingly ethnically Turkish country that we know today.
0: So Ataturk's looking around; he's the leader of this new Turkish Republic. He's sort of he has this vision of how how it needs to change, and this is the part where I I, I think he really amazes me. It was, it was somewhat of a backward nation, it was very much wrapped up with the, with the Islamic religion, and it was, it was, by most standards, I'd say, pretty backward. He decides he wants to make it a modern European nation, and to do that he's got to do, he's got to clean house in a lot of different ways. Can you kind of tell us what he set out to do?
1: Yes, Ataturk was uh, a man who really thought of himself as a, as a European much more than he thought of himself as an Asian. This was a guy who, despite his Muslim upbringing, he smoked, he drank, he chased after women, (laughs) and he certainly didn't ever show up at the mosque to worship. At best, he was nominally Muslim. In reality, uh, I suspect he was probably uh, an agnostic, if not uh, an atheist. So he really saw religion as a, as a force that was holding the, the country back. Everything that smacked of the old Ottoman Empire was something that he wanted to banish. He really keenly felt the weakness of Turkey, and he thought that in order for Turkey to be strong, it had to modernize and it had to secularize. So he abolished the sultanate and sent the last sultan off into exile. <laughs> and at the same time, he abolished the caliphate, the, the religious leadership role of the, of the sultan. And then he started to implement sweeping changes throughout all of, all of society. He closed the, the religious schools and replaced them with secular ones. He uh, banned uh, the wearing of the, of the fez, the kind of semi-conical hat that had been so quintessentially Ottoman for over, uh, over a century. He decreed that everyone must wear hats. And as trivial as that, that may sound, that was an incredibly <laughs> divisive policy. I mean, men were literally hanged for refusing <laughs> Good to, Lord. to give up their uh, their fez.
0: But I got to stop right there for a second because you know I bought a two dollar fez over there in Turkey and I, I love that thing. <laughs> it's a great it's a great hat.
1: <laughs> yes, and there were uh, a lot of Turks who also loved their fezes, <laughs> which interestingly enough had been instituted back in the 1820s by the Sultan under the Ottomans as part of a modernization campaign in that era. So now, a century later, Ataturk had found that, uh, no, the Fez didn't quite convey the image that he wanted for a modern European country, so the Fez had to go. Other things that had to go, the entire legal system, he threw that out the window and replaced it with one that was based essentially on Swiss law. The old (laughs) calendar, had to get rid of that. And brought in a, a, a new one, the script for their their language. well, the script that Ottoman Turkish was written in looks very much like like Arabic modern script in Turkey is based on our alphabet. The yeah. Roman alphabet with a couple of other additional letters thrown in for uh, sounds that uh, that don 't exist uh, <laughs> or aren't easily what? represented with Roman letters.
0: This is, this is one advantage I want to just add that the Turks and the Russians have over we in the West is they've got alphabets that have a letter for every damn sound, which we sure could use in English.
1: It is a very phonetic language. It's extremely complicated from a, a grammatical standpoint, the, the syntax and the conjugation and all the rest of it, but being able to read it and pronounce it, that's not very difficult at all. Once you learn the basic rules, it's extremely consistent. And it beats the pants off of English, obviously.
0: (laughs) So Ataturk, uh, he he sets out to modernize the nation, and what's, I think, most remarkable is that he pretty much succeeds.
1: He does succeed, and, you know, it's a real head-scratcher as to how it is that he managed to basically... Transformed the face of his country in uh, a period of, well, well under 20 years. He died in 1938 when he was still in his 50s. And by the time he died, Turkey was completely unrecognizable from the the smoking ruins of the Ottoman Empire that, that he had inherited. And I think, you know, trying to explain that. In part, it was his status as a, a military hero. In part, it was his charisma. In part, it was the fact that he had this this extraordinary, extraordinarily clear, burning vision that he was determined. <laughs> to impose on his fellow Turks. And, and I do use the word impose. He wasn't one to, uh, well, he observed the forms of a democracy, but virtually none of its substance. He knew, for example, that in a democracy, you were supposed to have an opposition party. So he'd go and create an opposition party. He'd say, you, you, and you, you're going to lead this opposition party. Well, then they'd go off and do what they thought they were supposed to do, oppose things, speak up, represent another point of view. Well, of course, as soon as they did that, Ataturk would get mad and would promptly arrest them or otherwise slap them down, ban the party, and go back to one-party rule. So he he had real problems with this whole democracy thing. He, He grasped the essence of republicanism but democracy, no, not so much.
0: <laughs> well, in closing, Gordon, I know that uh, you, you and your lovely wife, who is a UC Davis graduate, I want to plug, um, took a honeymoon to Turkey many years back, and, and you liked it then. You liked it, I gather, on your most recent pass. I certainly liked it in the two times I've been there, and I would put it as one of the, uh, certainly my top ten, maybe even top five tourist destinations.
1: I would agree wholeheartedly, and in fact, I intend to go back later this year.
0: Well, there you go. And, and I guess we want to just, the, the caveat to add is that, like, don't be misled by the Greeks. They're still sore over what happened back in the 20s they, when you talk to... And the Turks do have kind of this fearsome reputation that still lingers in America because of the bad mouth they get from the Greeks over here.
1: Yeah, there's, there's still some lingering bad blood there, no <laughs> doubt about it. <laughs>
0: Well, Gordon, you could probably come back and and augment this, and maybe you should in a few weeks. I know that after, you know, fresh from your experience over there, you've got more things to talk about. And uh, Turkey is a marvelous nation, I think, to no small degree. We can thank uh, Kemal Atatürk for that. And, uh, you know, it's worth probably a few more plugs and a few more discussions.
1: I'd be more than happy to do that.
0: All right, Gordon Smith, thanks so much. Thank you.